With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Tonight we have a really special show for you. Um, we're going to be discussing a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, a disorder that my um, daughter has. I've spoken about many times on the show. And we're featuring a film that is being made um, that is really going to change lives. The film is Canary in a Coal Mine, and it follows the lives of several really remarkable people living with myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, it's a very mysterious and devastating disease. Um, these people are forced to leave their jobs um, that they've loved, they, they, their dreams of what they thought their future would be. Um, you know, it, it, it puts a strain on their, their lives, their relationships, really as, every aspect of their lives. And um, what it really is about is the human consequence of a medical system that is ill-equipped to treat an illness that challenges its every assumption, the danger of ignorance and the power of a name. It's the story of a community of millions that says most of the world are invisible. And um, we have several guests. Um, we have um, Jennifer Bray, who's going to be on later. She is the director and producer of this film. Um, we have a remarkable woman from the United Kingdom, Jessica Taylor. She's going to be joining us in a little while. But right now, we are honored um, to be starting off with Dr. Derek Enlander. Um, Dr. Enlander is considered one of the most renowned experts on fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and ME in the world. Um, he has a fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue center in Manhattan. He was the physician-in-waiting to the British royal family during their visits here to New York. And uh, he is on the faculty of Mount Sinai Medical School and is an attending physician at Mount Sinai Medical Center. As I said, we're honored to have you on the show, Dr. Enlander. It's my honor, indeed. You know, I, you know, I will never forget, on a personal note, the first time I brought my daughter to see you. 
um, you know, she had been suffering terribly for many years and was either dismissed or passed along by all of the specialists, the dozens that we'd seen. Um, and after you looked at her history, you looked at her blood work, you looked at her brain scans, you said something that changed the course of her journey. And what you said was, Aliana, I want you to know you are not crazy. You have chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, and it is real. It is a physical disease. And that validation is what, it, it gave her such enduring hope. It gave her confirmation of everything she had gone through, and I want to thank you for that. Um, you know, I'm sure that you, you hear that from many patients that come to see you. I, I remember Adriana very well. I remember actually um, uh, examining her, and I remember actually going through um, copious notes. Um, the, the problem in this disease is, as I actually have said in Jennifer's um, brilliant film, that a lot of doctors are arrogant, um, and this arrogance actually goes to um, saying that uh, if we, as the medical profession, cannot make a diagnosis, the patient must be wrong. Uh, instead of actually saying, well, maybe we just don't have enough information or maybe we haven't done the right tests. Right. Uh, in the case of um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, called in America um, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, we actually tend to uh, um, not understand this disease because we don't know exactly uh, the cause. We believe actually that the cause is an immune system dysfunction perhaps caused by um, a prior exposure to a virus. Uh, Melvin Ramsey, the brilliant clinician uh, from the Royal Free Hospital in London, um, wrote his um, thesis um, on this disease. It's not actually um, a recent uh, phenomenon. Uh, this disease actually has been around for half a century. Yeah. And when Melvin actually um, uh, discovered actually a cohort of young doctors and nurses in the Royal Free Hospital suffering from this disease, the uh, young doctors and nurses were, were told that they were hysterical. And perhaps actually uh, Melvin Ramsey was also hysterical for making the diagnosis. Doctors actually um, said, well, all the normal blood tests are normal, which indeed is true. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that the right uh, blood tests uh, were looked at or that the right blood tests were available at that particular time in 1955. So the arrogance, unfortunately, is still pre is pervasive. A lot of doctors actually tell the patients, well, you're depressed, go and exactly. see a psychiatrist, or there's nothing wrong with you, you're imagining it. You know, actually, my daughter's pediatrician had said to her after, I mean, and, and when I say this, I mean this literally, after bringing her to the doctor to, to see her every week for months, um, you know, just turned around to her and said, suck it up. You're 13 years old. Go out with your friends, ha start having fun, and stop complaining to your mother. And it was the most disturbing thing that somebody could say to someone that's, that's suffering like this. But, um, you know, I want to go into um, with you exactly what this is, chronic fatigue syndrome and myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, you know, are they the same disorder um, and just used interchangeably? And are there subgroups um, within this umbrella of chronic fatigue syndrome? And how would a doctor make a diagnosis? No, we're, we're treading on actually um, thin ice. There are people actually who think that um, 
ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, are two separate and distinct um, uh, problems. That might, may well be that there are actually var variations um, in this disease. There are variations in many diseases. There are variations in, well, let me take something completely um, non-connected. Let me take a, a condition called um, tuberculosis of the lung. Tuberculosis of the lung actually can be a devastating lethal disease, and yet there can be actually patients who have a relatively light infection and actually um, uh, carry on what we might term a, a normal life. So there are variations in um, tuberculosis. There may well be also uh, variations in this disease. As we well know, Jennifer actually, who made the film, um, is more or less bedridden by this disease, and yet we have uh, other patients who are affected by this disease but can actually uh, perform somewhat um, in, in their um, education or in their career. Other patients actually have had their careers cut, cut short by this disease. It's a terrible affliction. Right. And do, do you find that, you know, the, I would assume that someone could get the same virus as, like, say, my daughter or Jennifer and not, um, you know, wind up having chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia or ME. So is there some type, are you finding any type of predisposition, any type of genetic um, link to it? I know that you were looking into that. Well, um, the, first, the first part uh, of your question is... Um, other actually people who are exposed to some of these viruses and the five viruses actually that um, are actually most often um, mentioned uh, are um, HHV6, human herpes virus 6, not to be confused with um, sexual uh, herpes. Um, Coxsackie B, which was the uh, virus that um, Melvin Ramsey uh, first described in his um, 1955 um, uh, case uh, uh, write-up, inclusion virus, um, a, a retrovirus. Now, the retrovirus story is somewhat cloudy because actually of my friend um, Judy Miklovitz, um, who actually did the original research on XMRV virus and wrote it up in science journal and it was unfortunately had to be retracted because it was found to be not a causative agent but to uh, uh, be an agent that had been uh, transferred from one lab to another. Okay. Um, Epstein-Barr virus uh, and um, a virus actually at um, uh, my friend Jonathan Kerr who unfortunately um, uh, did work um, signal work uh, at St. George's uh, Hospital in London um, and unfortunately he had to actually uh, withdraw from, from uh, MECFS research uh, because he didn't get tenure. Uh, Parvo 19. So any of these viruses actually have um, been uh, connected uh, with this disease. Now the unfortunate thing is that these all are common viruses. So the problem with a common virus is that everybody's exposed to these common viruses. Right. So if we actually uh, say that these viruses are causing this disease, 
detractors will say, well, everybody actually has been exposed to these viruses, so why doesn't everybody have this disease? And obviously only 1% of the population has um, uh, this disease. So the uh, question is, well, if there is a relationship, why are the uh, patients suffering? And why is the rest of the population, 98, 99% of the population not? And the answer is exactly what you said. Maybe there is a genetic predisposition. With that in mind, we actually um, were given a million dollars, actually, to set up a ME-CFS center by one of my patients who one of, very generously actually gave me um, this uh, generous grant. And um, we set up a group, including, actually, a world-famous geneticist, Eric Schacht. And Eric actually um, became very enthused about trying to find actually its genetic predisposition. And we are indeed actually uh, working along those lines. Yeah, I mean, that's going to really, I would assume, be so important. Uh, when you're making this diagnosis, you know, fibromyalgia is a subjective type of a diagnosis with trigger points and, um, you know, there's really no definitive blood work. But I remember from the testing you did on my daughter that, you know, there are um, results of tests that can lead you to this diagnosis. Am I correct? Well, what we have found, actually Nancy Climas, actually, who is also actually in Jennifer's film, um, is uh, an immunologist, and she has found actually that there are immunological deficits in this disease. For example, actually, certain cytokines actually are abnormal, natural killer cells are reduced, natural killer cell uh, function is reduced, mm-hmm. and certain other immunological markers. Uh, are a problem. Um, classically, we've actually added to the old FICUDA criteria um, the new uh, criteria, which includes um, post-exertional malaise, which is, seems to actually be somewhat peculiar to this disease. That means that after a patient has done some exertion, uh, 24, 36, or 72 hours later, they actually... Um, are suffering from um, a malaise due to this exertion. So therefore, it's not um, an anaerobic or aerobic uh, problem because that would actually occur immediately after the exertion. This is, we believe, um, some reflection of an immune system um, dysfunction. Yeah, you know, my other daughter has pandas. So, and you know, so many other parents that I speak to that have children with this, their other children seem to have some type of a compromised immune system. So, uh, you know, there ha- there has to be something, um, and I'm, I'm glad you're looking for it. You know, these, these disorders or diseases, um, they have such a neurological component to it as well. A lot of sensory issues, a lot of emotional presentations. Um, why do you think it is that it encompasses so many areas of of, of someone's life? Now let's let's uh, return to excuse me. Let's return to um, Melvin Ramsey. Melvin Ramsey actually um, was practicing in the 1950s. In the 1950s, we didn't have actually the benefits uh, which we have um, today of. CAT scans, MRIs, specs, PETs, uh, functional MRIs. We didn't have all these scanning mechanisms of, to determine where the actual uh, abnormality lay and what the actual um, deficits were. And he actually um, 
made the um, uh, uh, diagnosis uh, a term myalgic encephalomyelitis, myalgic being actually um, a function of um, abnormality in muscle, encephalo being uh, involving the brain, and myelitis actually involving actually peripheral nerves. So therefore, he conjured ME as a term, a new term, uh, involving actually the brain without actually, as I said, having the scanning mechanisms. Absolutely brilliant. So if we accept that this, and everybody I think does accept, that there are implications in the central nervous system uh, that the brain is afflicted, the affliction in the brain uh, can actually be um, uh, universal throughout the body because the right. brain is obviously uh, encompassing many, many functional um, problems. And you use multiple approaches, which I was very impressed with. Um, you use a lot of different approaches um, for your patients. So um, can you tell us what you're doing and why you're doing them? Well, we're doing, we're doing them actually not because, because of any sort of a, a clever um, diagnostic. Really have got no pinpoint that um, method of diagnosing this disease. What we've got to do is we've got to um, rule out other possibilities which cause um, the symptoms. There are many disease, uh, diseases which cause fatigue and fatigue-like illnesses. Simple uh, uh, diseases and more complex diseases. Simple diseases such as anemia. Anemia actually, um, iron deficiency anemia will actually uh, produce uh, a fatigue-like illness. More complex diseases such as actually uh, leukemia, um, lupus, uh, multiple sclerosis can also actually um, produce a confusing uh, consortium of, of symptoms which can and do mimic actually the symptoms that we see. So we've got to rule out these diseases before we uh, come up with a diagnosis of uh, MECFS. Okay. Well, you know, I think one of the problems we have is the lack of um, research, um, you know, and I'm hoping that, that that's going to change soon. But, um, you know, if, if there's someone out there that, you know, is suffering with this and isn't being, you know, listened to, um, you know, what recommendation would you have to them to go to get to somebody to help them? Well, you've got to find out a doctor, actually, who is sympathetic, first of all. Mm -hmm. You're going to actually have a doctor who's going to tell you um, just... Um, suck it in or whatever actually uh, uh, the answer is actually told. Right. Um, uh, that, that's obviously, you're not going to get um, very far because the doctor already has um, made a decision that um, there's nothing wrong with the patient and the patient is imagining it. So uh, you've got to actually say to the doctor, well, uh, do you realize that um, the patient is sick? And the doctor says, no, I, I don't accept that the patient is sick. Well, obviously one has to um, go elsewhere. Uh, the problem in this disease is that uh, there is depression. Um, there's depression in lots of chronic diseases. Depression in cancer. A patient actually has cancer. They're depressed. They're not. They're suffering from a disease actually, uh, which is going to afflict their life or has afflicted their life. And there, um, and there's a, a long sort of road ahead of them, they're depressed because they're not able to do the things that they uh, want to do and that they used to be able to do. So they're depressed. 
Now, nobody in their right mind is going to say, oh, your depression has caused cancer. Right. However, in MECFS, they are also depressed because they actually are not afflicted by a, a condition which um, has changed, actually, um, their manner of life. And doctors have got no um, problem in saying, oh, you're depressed. The depression has caused uh, your condition. Not that the MECFS has caused the depression. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. It really is. Uh, well, Dr. Um, Enlander, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, you know, speaking of um, you know severe cases and someone who wasn't listened to, I'm going to be bringing on um, Jennifer Taylor now, um, Jessica Taylor. I'm just sorry. Would, I just would like to actually say one final thing, mm-hmm. and that is that um, uh, the MECFS Center at Sinai that um, this uh, Janice donor actually um, set up. Uh, is having actually a, sec- a second uh, um, conference uh, in November the 20th to which all patients actually uh, are invited and uh, we will actually have uh, Nancy Klimas and Dan Peterson, Eric Schacht um, speaking uh, on wow. these and we actually uh, would like to see actually anybody who is in the vicinity come. It's oh, that. well, I'm definitely going to put that. It will be held at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Well, I'm definitely going to call your office, get the information, and we'll be putting that on this um, on the interview um, blog. So thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. It's my, my honor and pleasure. Thank you thank very, you. very much. Bye-bye. I'm going to be bringing on now um, an extraordinary woman, Jessica Taylor. She's 20 years, 21 years old. She lives in the United Kingdom, and she was about to embark into her adult life and independent living um, when her life took a very different turn. In 2006, everything changed for Jessica. Um, you know, she developed a very severe form of uh, myelogic encephalomyelitis and chronic fatigue syndrome, which by the end of the year had rendered her completely bedbound. She spent four continuous years in the hospital due to the severity of the condition, and she's been in and out of the hospital since. I want to read you a little bit of something that I found on her blog. And she wrote, This new life has definitely been somewhat of a roller coaster, to say the least, as I've struggled tremendously not only with my physical condition but the general lack of understanding and knowledge that seemingly comes with it. There have been various dips and turns within my illness. At the worst times, I remained unable to move or speak. I still am severely unwell. Since this biography was first written, I have suffered a great number of added knocks, but my general positivity and great love for life alongside my sense of humor, despite the odds, has strengthened me in my fight to get better, for I truly believe in a future beyond this. As I said, Jessica Taylor is just extraordinary, so I am going to bring her on now. Jessica, are you here? Jessica? Let me try to bring her on. It's just one second, everyone. I think I might have had a little connection problem. I am going to try to bring her back on, if everybody can just... Be patient for one second. International calling with um, Blog Talk Radio isn't always so easy, but I'll bring her right back on. 
Hi, Jessica. I'm sorry we lost you there for a second. It's Marianne. Uh, we're on the air. And I just, uh, I don't know if you heard, I was reading a little bit from your blog and telling them a little bit about you. But now I want you to to really just speak to the listeners. And, um, you know, if, if you'd like, I'd like you to just start off by talking about, um, you know, you have an extremely severe case um, of ME. So can you tell us how it started and how old you were when it started? We're having a technical problem with um, with the Skype with Jessica. I'm going to bring her back on. I'm going to have Chuck try to straighten that out. But um, right now, I'm going to bring on um, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Hi, Jennifer. I'm sorry. We're having some technical problems with the international call. How are you? No problem at all. I'm great. How are you doing, Marianne? I'm good. Well, we're going to get Jessica back on and hear her story. But um, you are unbelievable. I met you the other night. You are the producer and the director of this film, Canary in a Coal Mine. And um, I just want to let the audience know who you are. Um, you are, were a doctoral st- student um, in the Department of Government at Harvard University. Um, you are now on medical leave. And prior to that, you were a print journalist in Beijing, East Africa. And you've earned your A.B. in politics from Princeton University. Um, and your story is just unbelievable. You, you were signing a check at a restaurant when you found that you could not write your own name. Um, and this was months before your wedding. You became progressively more ill, um, losing the ability to even sit in a wheelchair. I mean, you know, this is devastating. Um, tell us a little bit about how this happened. Because, I mean, I, I think that nobody, it, it, like you say in the, the trailer, it is so crazy, this disorder, that nobody could believe it. Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't believe it either as it was happening to me. It was a little bit unbelievable. Um, I, I mean, basically what happened is a year before, so the, the check in the restaurant moment was um, my first neurological symptom. But a year before that, I had come down with, the worst fever of my life. Um, my temperature was like 104.7 degrees, and it held for five days until it went down to 102. And I had a, I had a 10-day fever, which has never happened in my life. Right. And um, after the fever, um, I um, became extremely dizzy and um, you know, had to sort of hug the wall to make it to the bathroom, and I, I had to lay in bed, and I couldn't leave my house um, for... I think about uh, two weeks, and I went to the doctor and was examined, and they said, oh, you, you have a, an inner ear infection, um, was, their, was their conclusion, and sent me home and said I, I would be better in a few days. Um, and then a few weeks later, I had a sore throat, and then that lasted for two days, and then once that was over, I was busy again. Um, and it kept happening, this sort of, you know, whether my illness lasted for a few days or for a week, once the sort of normal sinus infection, so whether it was over, I would have, like, this extreme dizziness. And um, for the first year, you know, I kept going to my doctor, and I kept saying, you know, I think there's something wrong with my immune system. And he said, you know, oh, that's impossible. If there was something wrong with your immune system, it would have been wrong since you were a child. Um, and, you know, every possible explanation that I would give to him of, like, I think something is wrong, here's what I'm seeing, and there's a pattern, um, he kept ignoring because the pattern that the pattern was there, but it wasn't the pattern that he had been trained to see in medical school. And so, um, you know, I had stretches of, of time when I was actually completely well during the first year, 
And then I was at this restaurant, and I, the check came, and I couldn't find my name. And it was a bizarre experience if you never had it before. Um, and I'm kind of used to it now. But um, I, I, you know, was looking at the check. I was thinking of my name. I was imagining myself drawing gold that is, you know, a part of the first letter J, and I could not move my hand. And it took me a while to realize that um, I had actually just lost the ability to draw curves, and I could not write, you know, J's or C's or, you know, the second part of the letter D. Um, and this sort of progressed into what I was diagnosed with ER with, which was a, you know, complex migraine or an atypical migraine. And um, so to make a long story short, I finally ended up at a neurologist, and he um, sort of said, okay, well, maybe you have, um, maybe you're having epilepsy, epileptic uh, episodes, maybe you're, you're, you know, a migraineur who's just sort of come into, <laughs> into her own. And he ruled those out, and the third option was that I had conversion disorder, which he explained to me as a, um, a sort of, uh, you know, physical symptoms that felt very real, but that were being produced by some unconscious, um, you know, stress or repressed trauma. And I thought, that is such a strange explanation. But, um, you know, I was, um, you know, doing a master's in stats, and I was sort of being trained in scientific thinking. And so I thought, okay, like, I don't want to reject this hypothesis out of hand. Let me compare it to sort of the data that I have and to sort of think about it for a while. And so, um, you know, he, I asked him, is my, was a science infection that I had last year, um, after which I was dizzy for three weeks, and for which I took antibiotics, you know, is that psychosomatic? Is the pain that I'm feeling right now in my leg psychosomatic? And he said yes. So I walked home with my husband um, from the um, a medical clinic and um, back to my house, and um, I was at a mile and, um, you know, kind of meditating on the psychosomatic pain in my legs. And when I got home, I just collapsed, and my brain and my spinal cord were burning. And right. um, I don't I mean I had a fever. I mean, they were, they were, it was, I had never been aware that I had a spinal cord until this day. It was the strangest, strangest, strangest feeling, and it was excruciatingly painful. I couldn't walk. I could not move. When I would walk, I could not move one foot in front of the other more than about an inch apart because I, I just had lost all mobility. And so, um, and from that time, I mean, I, I've basically never been as well as I was the day that I was in the office and it was diagnosed with conversion disorder. And I think that, you know, he, he didn't tell me to exercise, which is, what a lot of, which is the advice that a lot of people get. But I think if I had, if he told me in that moment, you have myalgic encephalomyelitis, <laughs> what you really need is complete bed rest. That is your best chance of recovery. I think I would be in a very different situation than I'm in right now. And that's a large part of why I'm making this film. I, I think no one has to get this bad. And, exactly. Um, um, so, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's one of the, um, you know, you go well, with my daughter. I brought her to, I'm not even going to mention who, but one of the best palliative care um, doctors who are supposed to specialize in this in teens, and they wanted her to do a boot camp, aerobics every day. And I'm not there saying, oh my are, God. are these people out of their minds? She can't walk. Did you see her? We had to practically carry her in the door. They don't get it. 
you know, and I'm glad we didn't listen because I hear so many horror stories like yours. Um, but as you said, you know, this, you're passionate about this, making this film. I'm passionate about getting the word out about this film. But one of the ways that this started, um, and we're going to go a little bit uh, more into, you know, really what your life is now. Um, you know, why don't, why don't we do that first? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your life before you got ill? and the impact that, you know, when everything changed. Um, I'm sorry, so sort of whenever, how, what my life was like before I became ill? Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that's a little, little bit what you were saying. I mean, I was a very, um, you know, I, I always hesitate to say this because there are these sort of stereotypes. It's too, I mean, this is how you know that the world is wrong. There are, like the two most predominant stereotypes of people who get this is that they are hard-driving overachievers and that they are people who are inordinately lazy. You can't get it together. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure how both, how both can be true. Um, but I was, I was a very um, ambitious person, and I think I, you know, I, I always dreamed of doing something with my life that would be meaningful and useful to others. And I, I, and I, I didn't even really know what that meant, but I just had this belief that, like, that was what I was supposed to do because I um, had, you know, a hard life when I was a kid, and I had been incredibly lucky in my life, and I wanted to sort of share that in some way. And so um, I decided that I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to um, be a journalist, and I traveled the world. I was in um, Beijing for a few years, although I kept getting called to other places. So it was sort of Beijing was my home base, and I spent some time in India and in East Africa. And, um, you know, I, I actually wonder what role that played in predisposing me to this, and as much as I, you know, I had the sort of, you know, I breathed the, um, fiberglass and the sort of toxic chemicals and, you know, all of that crap in the air in Beijing and I was exposed to all kinds of, um, you know, microbes because I just, I just traveled everywhere and I ate everything and I did everything and I lived life to the fullest. And, um, and when I came back uh, to the U.S., um, I, I went to school um, at Harvard and so I was in Boston and, um, you know, I, I, there, were, there were some signs of some, like, um, you know, I, I knew that I found that I was gluten intolerant and, and, I, and I started taking care of myself better or trying to. Um, but I think that by the time I was hit with this virus, I probably wasn't in the best physical health. I don't think that I knew it because I think from the outside I was just, you know, I was still just this sort of young 28-year-old who, um, you know, is in really good health. But, I, but now that I know what I know about what is conducive mm-hmm. to good health, I think I probably wasn't. Right. Um, in terms of my life now, I mean, it was a real shock. I think, you know, it's the sort of thing where you have no idea what's going on with you. Um, your doctors, the ones that you're seeing until you see specialists, have no idea what's happening. And so I think at first I didn't know how long run this would be. Mm-hmm. I just knew that it was serious. Right. And right. it was actually, you know, I have to say, like, um, uh, for the first few months after the neurological symptoms started, um, I was very often in a state where I wasn't able to speak and I couldn't use language. Um, yep. I could understand language, but I couldn't speak. I, I had no verbal thoughts. And when you don't have any verbal thoughts, you can't really think about the past. 
or conceive of the future. You can't wow. really that's really and interesting. It was, and it was actually a blessing. <laughs> I would imagine. I think, if I, I think if I had been more cognitively capable, I would have worried wow. more. But I that's, really, that, <laughs> that's really amazing because my, the same thing happened to my daughter. I mean, it was an effort for her just to talk. Um, wow. you know, and that's a message I really want to get out because this is, you know, this was some, at one point, um, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, considered the yuppie virus. And it is just so obnoxious. Um, and, and and offensive to anyone that has this, because this is this is just so life changing, um, you know. And and really, what I want to go into is this film because this is life changing for you, and it's going to be life changing for everyone else. But the way this film started was because of your you know the severity of your symptoms, you started keeping a video diary. Um, because you said you lost the ability to write. So what was it that caused you to lose the ability to write? Was it that it prohibited you from physically writing, um, you know, cramping? Was it the brain fog that comes with it, word retrieval? I know word retrieval is a big problem. The exhaustion. You know, what prompted you to start doing a video diary? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because um – as I was th- you know, thinking about it, it's like, well, actually, all of the above, depending on the day. Um, right. I mean, so I, I, I think that, you know, there were moments when I, I really just completely lost my use of language completely, um, and then there were moments where I couldn't even move, um, and you know, that, those are sort of the more severe symptoms. I think on a day-to-day basis, I just, I, I was in a state at the beginning um, where I could not write for more than sometimes five minutes, sometimes ten, sometimes ten words, without experiencing this extreme exhaustion. And by exhaustion, I mean, it, it just, I, I think the thing, I mean, honestly, I mean, the thing about this illness is that there are no words. Like, we use these words, you know, I'm exhausted, I'm fatigued, I'm, like, to describe, which, which describe normal healthy experiences to this illness. Every symptom I've experienced, I've never experienced before in my life. It feels completely different. And and, and because, you know, most other people don't experience them, there are no common words that we can use to describe them. And I think that's a lot of the failing, which is part of the reason why I think images can be so powerful. But um, what would happen, and back to your question, what would happen was that I would, you know, I I would just be, be typing a little bit on my computer, trying to write a really simple email, and all of a sudden I would just I would, just, I would not be able to continue. I would feel, um, you know, what I kind of think is a sort of, you know, an inflammatory response starting in my body because I was typing too much, because I was thinking too hard. I mean, that's how depleted I was of all of my resources. And when things got a little bit better, I could type for longer, but then I would look back at what I was writing. And it would be, you know, I would think that I had written something cogent, and I would, I would switch words that didn't even sound alike. They'd be completely unrelated to each other. And I would make all kinds of mistakes. And I still do. And it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, I used to have um, a really, you know, good command of language. I, I loved writing. And I was, you know, working on a book and um, have, have always wanted to, to be a writer. And so that, that was really, really disappointing to me. And I think I... I think I, I really struggled for a while to sort of figure out how would I still be myself when I lost something that was so central to my identity. 
Well, you um, know what? I, I just, you know, when as you're saying this, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, I have a daughter your age, and you know, really, you know, I feel for you. And you know, sometimes when you lose what you thought was your direction, your dream in life, you know, you find that your truth path and purpose, you know, it's bigger than what could have ever been when you go through some type of, you know, adversity like this. Um, so, you know, I hope you know that. And, you know, the, when you talk about powerful, I was shaking at the Kickstarter party the other night. I was literally, my body was shaking as I watched the trailer because it is so powerful. And I've watched a lot of videos and a lot of things on YouTube, and there is nothing like what you are putting out there. Because you are putting out there the reality of how this disorder consumes people. And, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's just incredible. And, you know, I, we're going to go into it in a little while. I want you to talk about some of the people that are there. But, you know, I would also assume, I mean, I met your husband. He's adorable um, at the party the other night. But... Um, you know, how do you deal with the emotional aspect of this? I mean, the physical part of it is just beyond. Like you said, you know, when my daughter was very young and she would even say, I can't even explain to you what it feels like because I don't think anybody's ever felt this before, um, the yeah. physical symptoms. But, you know, the emotional impact that it takes, you know, how did you deal with that? How did your husband, how do you deal with it? Um, I, I just want to say first that I really feel for your daughter and when you sort of tell me, some, tell me a quote like that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's my life, too. You know, and that's part of what this experience has been. I think this is why we've been able to raise so much of our goal so quickly on Kickstarter. It's because I think people see themselves in the film, and uh, just as I did as I was sitting in the interview room talking to people in, in the film and realizing I am not alone and this is actually a really common experience. I, in a doctor's office, I'm made to feel like I'm weird or that something is, you know, really far, I, I'm outside of the bounds, right? But, like, this is actually very common, very, not, not, not common, but not uncommon, and I want to kind of try to write us back into, into, the, into the story. Um, my husband is amazing, and I, um, I think, have really um, grown especially in the process of, of sort of listening to other stories to understand just how lucky I am and um, to have that support because I think that family support um, and the support of a partner um, or, you know, or, or of a mother or of a sister is the most important thing in this illness. And not everyone has that. Right. And, um, I mean, I, I think in terms of the emotional aspect, I mean, I... You know, I mean, he is, he's just sort of by nature in terms of his personality, he's a very upbeat person. He loves making jokes. I think he likes being married to me in part because I laugh at his jokes. And so no matter how physically bad I'm feeling or how down I am, he's, he's there and we create joy together, you know, whether... You really do. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and, and I, I think we're both people who love adventure and... So we kind of treated this as a, as a you know, our, another great adventure, and um, and 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 so it's it's also this feeling of of um, I mean I, I can't even describe 
how close you, 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 you grow to a person when you go through something like this. And, um, you know, I, I, we were engaged to be married, and I, I, I kept telling him, are you really sure you still want to do this? I don't know if uh-huh. I'm going to get better. Like, you, right. don't, you don't have to do this. And I went through a very long period where I felt guilty um, because I, you know, I still do to some extent because I wish that we could be, like, you know, traveling the world together and, I, and, you know, going out with our friends or like even going out to a restaurant down the road, which is so far from my life. Right. Um, but right. at the same time, we find a way to make our own joy. And um, Well, you've, and, you've and taken I, on this journey together. I mean, he is right by yeah. your side with this film. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Um, you know, I think one of the problems... Um, that I think you face, my daughter faces, and um, Jessica, if I can't get her on now, I'm going to have her come on when I have Hillary Johnson come on. That would um, be great. But I think one of the problems is that the term is thrown around so loosely, oh, I have chronic fatigue syndrome, and they might have maybe a very mild case of it, that people that have the, you know, the ME, I mean, it, it's, it's like two different worlds. I mean, when you travel, you pack as if you're going away for a week to go into Manhattan an hour drive, um, you know, with what you have to bring, and you need a wheelchair, and you need a cot. And it's just, it, it's, it's, it, when I look at how it has affected your life and, you know, how you're still finding the strength to do this, it's just unbelievable. Um, you know, one of the things about this disorder is that it seems to really be very gender-related. I mean, I know there are men that get it, um, but there seems to be more women, or maybe women just present differently. Do you know what the difference is with, between the men and the women? Um, well, so there's, there's actually um, uh, another person you may have on at some point is Mady Hornig, who can tell you about that, because um, they're doing a study at Columbia, and I think... Um, that they may have found something interesting there. And oh, I'm not going to say anything more okay. I'm not sure if it's public or not yet or not. But I okay. think I think but but I think I think that um I, I, I think that there are definitely these really deep gender differences and I think that it would be very interesting, not just for this illness, but for a wide range of um, autoimmune or illnesses of immune dysfunction where you have mm-hmm. This sort of, I mean, the, the sort of 80-20 or 75-25 spread, women-men, that you find in ME mm-hmm. is, I think, the same as you find in MS, and it's the same as in a number of other diseases that disproportionately affect women. And so I, I, I don't know that that angle has been exploited enough in terms of, in terms of research. I, I've also been a little bit perplexed that this hasn't been more, and you know, not to exclude the men <laughs> at all, but why right. this hasn't been more of a women's health issue or a women's rights issue. Absolutely. My perception is that women's health advocacy groups tend to take a very literal um, interpretation of what women's health means. So it's about, like, breasts and ovaries, which are really important, as we all know, but what makes women different from men is, is, is a lot more than the sort of very obvious anatomical differences and, you know, I mean, our immune systems are different, right? Because we have to be able to have children. We have to be able to, to, we have to, be able to silence or suppress certain aspects of our immunity or alter it in order to be able to carry a child with a term and not attack the fetus. And so um, this is not remotely my area of expertise, um, but it's something, it's a question that I have. It's something that I, 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 you know, I do wonder about. In terms of the verity thing, you know, I, for me, um, 
I don't think that everyone who is diagnosed with CSS has ME in the right. sort of Ramsey sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is just because the diagnostic criteria are super broad. The ones that we use now and the one that the CDC recommends, it's super broad. And it actually ex- does not include some of the hallmark symptoms. Like the, like the, 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 the PACUDA definition does not talk about these really severe neurological symptoms that or I was the sensory. Having. Yeah, the sensory. Yeah, or the neurological ones and, and, the, right. and the sound sensitivity and the light sensitivity and the, right. the, the sort of overstimulation. And so, and so when, you see, when you present with those symptoms, people say, oh, okay, well, that's not chronic fatigue syndrome or you're, you're kind of just crazy. And then when you, when you don't present with those symptoms, I, mean, I, I, think, I think there are a lot of people who may have other conditions that are kind of lumped in. And I also think a lot of doctors who don't, aren't really trained in understanding what this is and recognizing it use the name as a shorthand. So you might have like a sleep-wake a sleep disorder and be very tired, and that's chronic fatigue. And so, and so it, it's really kind of a big mess. When I, when I say ME, I don't mean, I'm not really talking about severity. Um, I am showing a lot of, um, you know, the more severe cases, and, and I, 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 I'm not even really exactly sure why. I, find, I think I just find the stories very compelling and important to show. Well, because, you know, I, and I think it's important that you do that. Um, and, you know, the film is progressing, and I'm sure you'll have other people yeah. that... Um, but I, I, but I, I just wanted to say really quickly that, that the... The, the difference between ME and CSS is not severity. Even in these sort of historical outbreaks, you would have people who would get ME, and some people, some people would recover. Some people would be less severely affected. And so it's not about severity. It's about trying to have a clear, very clear definition and theory of what this is. And so actually, as Dr. Enlander was saying before, you know, use the right tests and know how to apply them. Exactly. And, you know, I, part of it also is, um, you know, if you, if you look at, like, my daughter, um, my oldest daughter actually had chronic fatigue syndrome, mild chronic fatigue syndrome after mono. And uh, I remember going to different doctors, and one of them said, you know, sometimes there's like a five-year period, and, you know, sometimes you start to see improvement when people get it very young. And she did. Um, and, you know, what I see with my daughter is that she was so sick. I mean, she couldn't pick up her head to drink. I'd have to, you know, give her, I'm only getting nauseous when I'm thinking about it, um, you know, a drink with a straw. I mean, that's how sick she was. Um, and I think that the reason she's getting better is because the chronic fatigue portion of it is getting better. The fibromyalgia is still very bad. But the chronic fatigue, it just sort of eats at your body. Um, you know, it, it's horrendous. And I think it's important that you show the whole spectrum um, of, of what's going on. Um, you know, when Hillary um, Johnson I spoke to at the party, and, and she was saying, you know, people don't understand that kids can get this. Teens can get this. And the good news is they're finding that kids that get it seem to have more of a chance of um, having improvement than others that get it when they're in their 20s or 30s. Um, you know, but it's still devastating. Um, but I want to I start talking about the film and Kieran. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about Kieran, who she is, and, um, you know, how she got involved in this film, Canary in a Coal Mine. So, um, Kieran Tatanvis is our lovely creative producer, and she, um, you know, basically I, I was, as I was sort of coming up with this idea to do a film, um, which I, I, I knew that I needed to sort of enlist someone from the beginning. I, I wanted to do... 
a Kickstarter campaign that would um, raise enough money to fund our film. And I thought, you know, in order to do that, we really need to show people something that's a very high quality, um, where we've really gone out and interviewed people and, and kind of given some, you know, a kind of sampling of, like, here's what we could do if we could go all the way and do a 90-minute film. And so I wanted to find something really good, and I was looking everywhere, and I have no background in film, and I have no sort of networks, and so I just posted this um, email on the Princeton Alumni Network, and she responded, and we chatted, and I think she was maybe the only person who responded, so I got really lucky. Um, and you know, it was a funny thing where um, we we really hit it off, and she understood the story in a deeply intuitive way, even though she has no personal connection to it. And I don't really know why. I think um, you know a part of it is maybe her own background. Um, she's a rather cosmopolitan person. I think sort of understands um, sort of how to see to the the craft. Um, and and she's just she's just been wonderful, and she's been she's amazing, passionate. Really yeah, I, she's very very passionate about it. Very. And, and this isn't and, a documentary. This is more of a narrative film. And the people you feature are, are truly remarkable. Um, as the end, the experts that you weave in, I mean, are just incredible. So tell us a little bit about some of the experts. You've mentioned their names before, but you know, let the listeners know what they're in for with this film, um, with the experts, and then tell us about Howard. Um, he's incredible. I'm hoping to have him on because I'm going to be doing a series um, for your film um, where I'm going to be interviewing a couple of the people that you have on and a couple of the experts. Um, so tell us a little about Howard and Mary and Lisa. Um, sure, no problem. Um, just to clarify, the, the documentary versus narrative, I mean, I, basically we're trying to do creative nonfiction, you know, sort of in the literary equivalent, sort of to tell stories um, about truth and hopefully in a way to kind of move people. Um, the, so we have, a really, we have a really good group of people that we've interviewed so far. Um, so we've interviewed Dr. Enlander. We've interviewed um, Nancy Klimas, who is, is an immunologist um, in, in Florida. We've, we've interviewed um, Mady Hornig. We have a lot of other people on our wish list. Um, so uh, we really do want to get a wide range of voices of experts who may not necessarily agree with each other on everything, which is, um, you know, what science is about. It's, it's mm-hmm. messy and there are debates. Um, we uh, um, are also uh, sort of uh, interviewing a number of patients. Um, Howard Bloom is a, um, <laughs> a, a polymath, and he is irrepressible. Um, <laughs> he's someone who, I mean, he's just, he has just a huge personality, and, and he's someone who is, you know, I, I don't think there's, there are people who can be both into quantum physics and rock stars um, mm-hmm. in a single lifetime and kind of pull it off. So he's wonderful. And he was bedridden for 15 years, mm-hmm. five of which he could not speak. And today he, like, as he will say to, you know, anyone, like, um, I can do 490 push-ups. And I mean that's that's a great story to ask him about how he got from being in that place. Oh, where I plan now. on it, and I plan um, on talking about him growing up too, because that man is, you know, I, I have a show on my network about genius, about giftedness, and if there is anyone <laughs> that fits that category, it is Howard. Yes, no, for sure, and a very generous person. Um, so, so we have him. We have. Um, 
we've uh, done some filming with a woman, Lisa, in Toronto. Um, we weren't able to interview her, unfortunately, remotely because um, she can't really speak. Um, and so we're, we're, we're looking forward, um, if we reach our funding goal, to be able to go and spend time with her and try to tell her story even with those limitations. Um, so we're looking forward mm -hmm. to the creative challenges of that. Um, we're also interviewing Jessica, who is amazing. She um, will tell her own story when she's on, but um, I think what really I found really compelling about her story was, you know, what you talked about a little bit earlier about how something really awful happens to you, and it actually leads you into finding, um, uh, you know, a, a new path or a greater mission. And she's been running this amazing charity called Share a Star from her bed, um, along with her father, where they raise money and help to sort of give support to children who are dealing with rare or terminal diseases. And so this idea of a, of a woman who can't leave her own bed, um, helping and giving in that way is just remarkable. Um, but I think, I think it's very natural. When you, when you don't have a lot to give, you, you, you want to give that much more in a way because you, you, you understand. Um, so I think you find a purpose. You, yeah. you absolutely find a purpose, you know, in these things. I mean, I see my daughter's only 17 now, and, you know, I see how different she is now from the other kids her age. Um, it just changes you. Um, you know, but and, you and feel... I'm... Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say that I am so much more grateful for every single living, breathing moment of my life. I am hyper-aware because there's not a single moment that I do not feel sick. I feel sick constantly. Yep. And I'm hyper aware of my body in a way that I never was in my life. Um, you know, my mother used to always say, you know, stay in your body, be aware of your body. I was, I was a mind. I was uh, running around the world <laughs> to sort of detach my body. And I, I wish and I hope that through this film we can not only um, you know, educate people and show the world what the disease looks like, but also bring back some of those lessons that I think we've all learned from being in that place because I wish it were possible to see what that is without having to go through this. And, you know, it, it shows, I mean, to me when I left, because like I said, I was, I was shaking when I watched the documentary. Um, and I think that it, it, it's powerful because it shows you really, truly what it is and how it affects someone's life. But really the messages of hope and the anger in these people – which they deserve to be angry, is just incredible because they've turned that anger and that hopelessness into such something so empowering. Um, you know, and, and, and from what I've done on my show, I mean, I do all types of disorders and, and illnesses for children and teens. But what I found was that whether I was talking about Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, or cancer, the emotions were universal. And that's one thing that you say about this film, um, that, you know, that you feel it, it, it's a universal story. Well, I, I, you know, I, I did not at first. When this first started happening to me, it felt incredibly individual and, and, and like I was, I was having this really idiosyncratic experience that was sort of crazy and outside of, of, of normal human life. And then as I started learning more about my illness, I found this um, really large community of other people living with ME, and that was wonderful. Um, as I started sharing more and more about what I was going through, I started 
um, you know, finding people, you know, old friends who kind of came out of the woodwork with various um, cases of being you know, misdiagnosed or poorly treated by doctors. Or I have a friend, Eva Hagberg, who um, has donated some, some books to the, um, the campaign, and, you know, she was treated for anxiety for years. Um, and because she was busy until doctors, you know, found that she actually has some type of growth in her brain. So it's just, it's, 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 you start to realize that um, it's not just about ME, that there is, are a lot, you know, many sort of broader issues here surrounding chronic illness, how we treat people with chronic illness, how how chronic illness affects women in different ways than it affects men. And, and so, so I think that there's a universality um, among sort of people who, are, who have this experience of being sick um, and being not believed and uh, really having to fight for themselves or go on their own um, because of the way the medical system is structured today and the way that doctors are trained. Um, do hope, and I, I think we aspire to this in the film to speak to people whether or not they've had the experience of a chronic illness because I think that at every point someone will face a really difficult moment or it will happen to someone that they love. Um, it could be health. It could be something else. Um, but they'll face an obstacle that will destroy the vision that they had for their future. And... I think that there's a way in which we can crumble in the face of that or we can try to find a way to make good, whatever that means. And I think that is really the larger story that I want to tell, the larger sort of human story behind this. Absolutely. And, you know, you're doing it beautifully. And, you know, as you said the other night, you know, you um – with most independent films, um, you know, you need funding for the film, and most, as most other um, filmmakers do, you go through Kickstarter. So, you know, basically, how can we help you get this film done? I mean, I cannot tell you how important this film is, not only to me, you know, as a mother of a child going through this, but to all of those, I mean, million people uh, that do not have a voice, you know, they're, who are suffering and are invisible. Um, you know, tell us how you um, are funding this because I just want to say that you just had the Kickstarter um, launch party two days ago, and you're already almost at um, your first goal, um, which is amazing. So, um, you know, tell us how you're doing this and how we can help you. Sure. Um, well, so we we launched at around 1 p.m. on Tuesday. Um, it's now Thursday evening, and so we've been um, live for. I don't know, 53 hours, and we are 80% of the way to our goal. We've raised um, almost $40,000, and um, our, our original, the original goal that we set to raise on Kickstarter was $50,000. The budget for our film is $200,000. We thought, you know, it'll be hard because no one really cares about people with this illness, and so, you know, it's, it's going it's to be a hard campaign, but we'll get the money, and if we can get to 50K, we can then go to outside funders and say there's an audience for this story. People want to hear this story, and we want people to prove to outside funders that this is a story worth telling and worth their support, and I got it wrong. I got it totally wrong. Well, tell everybody how Kickstarter works, because you and I (laughs) I know how it works, but it's important people get it. 
Yeah, no problem. So Kickstarter is um, this sort of fundraising platform where people who have creative projects or, or designing a new product or what have you can come and crowdfund um, the, you know, sort of either a prototype or like their project. So for films, it's, it's, it's crowdsourcing the funding to make a film. And it's an all or nothing campaign, so if you don't reach your goal, you don't, you don't get to keep any of the money that you've raised. And so we set a goal of 50000 which is a quarter of our budget. And the reason why I set that goal was because I did not want to have to like, – I, I, I knew I didn't have the physical capacity to do what it would take to fund the entire film on Kickstarter. But I, I think the thing I didn't understand was that this, raising the money that we needed was not about – um, other people caring about our story. It was about us caring about our own story, and there are a lot of us out there. And we have been just so embraced with love in the last two days in ways that I cannot even begin to tell you. And I think people are sort of looking at this film and feeling like we have a voice, and, 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 and I um, am trying to raise the entire budget of $200,000 on Kickstarter by November 22nd, and so I need your help to get there. And um, crowdfunding, you know, the way that it works is you um, raise money by getting small amounts, small donations from lots and lots of people. So um, if you've been compelled by um, the story, if you go to um, the Kickstarter website and you search for Canary in the Coal Mine or, or go to j.mp forward slash Canary Film, and you feel compelled by the story, please give. And then share. <laughs> share it everywhere. Email it to people. Talk about it with your friends. Post it on Facebook or Twitter if you use Facebook and Twitter. And, and really just get the word out for us. And that would be the best thing that you can do. Because if we could raise our entire budget of $200,000, it would mean so much for this project. Because I, I, can't, I am not well, and I cannot go and fundraise in the way that most directors and creators would. And so um, that's why this platform is so amazing for us because it allows us to kind of aggregate our voice and say, you know, we care about this. Um, there's a second project which is growing out of this that I wanted to talk about briefly um, when, Marianne, you were talking about voicelessness. I have received so many stories from people, and every time I open my email, I'm, I'm, I'm either crying with gratitude or my heart is breaking. People who send me photos of themselves in the emergency room, people who are, you know, fighting because the state is trying to take away their children because their children have ME and the doctors don't know what that is and so they don't believe them. And, right. and it's just a lot of really powerful things happening. And, and so what we've we decided to, to do is start this website to allow people to share their own stories and to post videos and photos and text because I think this Kickstarter campaign, I mean, it, it would be lovely to raise the money that we need for the film but I think that there's a larger moment happening here where even if we're sick and weak and at home in our beds, if we can all sort of speak and shout with one voice, it's going to be – I really think we can change the world. And whenever I say that, I, I know it sounds, it sounds a little crazy, but I think it's already starting to happen. And so um, oh, please give, please share the project, and it please share your story. It absolutely is. And I just want to just be clear to our listeners that – um, you know, even though you do, did set the goal much lower than you needed for this film, and people are just responding like crazy, if you don't get the $50,000, um, you don't get to keep the 40000 And by the way, I'm online right now watching, and in the past 10 minutes that you've been talking, you got three more donations. 
um, <laughs> which is awesome. I'm just watching the numbers roll here. But, you know, keep in mind that if, if you feel for this film, if you think that you would like to contribute, and, and when you go on, if you go to Kickstarter, just type in Canary in a coal mine in the search, and it'll come up. And they've got some really cool packages where um, you can give a dollar, you can give, you know, $400. Um, you know, they have different things that you can get, like signed um, photos and um, hoodies, and, you know, you can, Howard Bloom is even giving away a 10-minute um, one-on-one conversation. So, um, you know, there are a lot of great things to do. So please go to Kickstarter, type in Canary in a Coal Mine, and give what you can. And when we have this website up, we'll put it up. Um, it's on our website um, at thecoffeeclatch.com. You can go to the blog, and everything is there. You can watch the trailer, which is incredible. Um, you can go to the website, Canary in a Coal Mine. It's www.canaryinacoalminefilm.com. And you can watch the trailer there, and you can watch um, Jennifer and Kieran talk about the project. And, you know, I'm just so thrilled to be even a little part of, um, you know, helping you get this out. Thank you so much, Marianne, for all of your support. This has been wonderful. Well, it's great. And like I said, I apologize to Jessica um, Taylor, who we were trying to get on by Skype. I don't know what happened. But I'm going to be interviewing um, the author of um, Osler's Web, um, Hillary Johnson, and I'm going to be bringing Jessica on um, for that interview. And I hope to have a few more people and do a series um, on this amazing film. So the best of luck to you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Have a lovely You're evening. welcome. Um, As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent with us at The Coffee Clatch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Have a great night, everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.